Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Care Package Part 1. The Supreme Court rules the care of Indigenous children should be in the hands of Indigenous nations. A Manitoba First Nation that took control of its own child services years ago says the decision will mean happier, healthier families. Care Package Part 2. A boost in federal health care funding will allow Ontario to hire more health care workers. But one ER doc warns that the situation is still critical. Under suspicion, he says he has been questioned over and over again based solely on the color of his skin, which is why our guest is suing the Japanese police for alleged racial profiling. Many happy returns. An American museum hands seven looted artifacts back to Ghana 150 years after they were stolen. The director of that museum tells us how powerful that moment was. The art of the steel. A Montreal father tells us about the moment he found out his son's high school art teacher appeared to be selling students' artwork online and passing it off as his own. And shopping mollusks. Washington State is divided over which clam should be officially designated the state clam, and everyone involved is getting pretty steamed. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that figures it's always good to have a safety bivalve. The care of Indigenous children should be in the hands of Indigenous nations. That's the gist of a decision today by the Supreme Court. It ruled that a 2019 law giving Indigenous nations jurisdiction over child and family services is constitutional, and it overturned an appeal by Quebec which argued that that law was an overstep by the federal government. The Supreme Court disagreed, calling it a significant step forward on the path to reconciliation. Following the ruling, Patty Haidu, the Minister of Indigenous Services, was asked what she had to say to Quebec. There is a huge connection between things like missing and murdered Indigenous women and the disruption of family, the disruption of culture, the disruption of love in many cases. And so this is an issue that I think uh, we should all be seized uh, by as Canadians. And why, why do you think they fought C-92? I can't, uh, I can't actually... Uh, give you hypothetical no, they reasoning. It was a matter of jurisdiction, did they not? They thought it was an overreach. So what? Well, the court has <clears throat> determined that the federal law is in fact uh, legitimate and that it does establish inherent rights for Indigenous people to control their own chattel and family services. Uh, and I, I am very thrilled with the ruling. Are you can not, can we Two years ago, Pegwis First Nation in Manitoba formed its own child and family law through ceremony, and regardless of the Supreme Court decision, it was not planning on backing down. Earl Stevenson is the in-house counsel for Pegwis Nation's Child and Family Services. That's where we reached him. Earl, what does the Supreme Court decision say to Indigenous people listening across the country? Well, first of all, bonjour, tante. It's a very good day in the sense of uh, looking at how Indigenous legal traditions can uh, properly locate themselves with mm-hmm. respect to the, with respect to the child welfare regime. As you've been implementing this, as the First Nation has been implementing this, what kinds of changes have already come through? I'll give you a little bit of n- some numbers here. Uh, when I started at the agency back in December 2019, there were about 452 children in care under PEGWA CFS, under our agency's provincial mandate. And as of October 31, 2023, we only have 214 children in care. I'll give you another example. Uh, back in September of 2022, um, we, were, we were prepared to accept a transfer from Winnipeg CFS, a non-Indigenous agency, to our agency. Uh, but at that time, <clears throat> the, the law at that time in Manitoba we were going to accept that transfer, but the temporary order time had run out. 
And when the temporary order time runs out, the only recourse is to go for a permanent order. And a permanent order at that time would have terminated parental rights. Now, under our law, that's something that we did not absolutely want to do. We did not want to terminate any parental rights. So we ended up going to King's Bench Intake Court, and um, ultimately Justice Doyle at that time granted a temporary order in the name of Pegasus Child and Family Services under our law, under the Honor of Children, Families, and Nation Act. And that was the first time that such an order was ever made in King's Bench in Manitoba under an Indigenous law. So this this order was granted on a Thursday, granted in the name of uh, of Pegasus on a Thursday. So the very next day on a Friday, our worker took those two infants to visit mom and dad at their home. So that was the first time that mom and dad actually got to visit with their two children at their home. Very emotional moment there for mom and dad and for our agency worker as well to, to be put in a place to help this family work on reunification, which was ultimately, you know, the uh, the end goal of, of this process. And we did reunify mom and dad with these two young kids over several months. That must be emotional, as you said, but but satisfying and rewarding as well. Yes, very heartwarming. And, you know, there's plenty of great success stories that we have here. Like, like for example, for 2023, January 2023 to May 2023, there were zero child welfare cases here in Pegasus on the child protection docket. That's the first time that's, that's ever happened, right? Mm. Because we're using these alternatives, such as customary care agreements, to divert families from the court system. And the adversarial court system is obviously a traumatic process and something that we don't want the children and the parents to, to mm. have to go through. So if we can work on a preventative matter in, in a really positive way, then that's what we aim to do. So reunification, keeping families together, out of court, as you said, you also have a program set up for young adults who have aged out of care. Yeah, we call them extension of service agreements. So from ages 18 to 26, for those youth that were involved in the child welfare system, as, as a young Indigenous person, it's very difficult to secure you know, rental property. Uh, that's the main reason is systemic racism. So what we're doing in, in, one, in, in some instances are we're providing letters of guarantorship and the agency would step in and pay for a month's rent if, if this young adult failed to meet mm-hmm. you know that specific month's rent. So again, uh, the responsibility is, is on the young adult to take care of those type of uh, monthly, monthly uh, requirements. However, if they do happen to miss, we'll step in and, yeah. and cover for that specific month. In its appeal, as you know, Quebec was arguing the federal government overstepped its legislative authority, infringed on provincial jurisdiction, and effectively recognized Indigenous peoples as a third order of government. What did that argument say to you? Well, ultimately, Quebec's argument was rejected by the by the Supreme Court, and but but Quebec's argument is still colonial based, and we're in this era of decolonization. That's unfortunate. However, I don't consider First Nations jurisdiction as a, as a third level order, third order of government at all. But what the decision talks about is braiding or weaving together all these these three indigenous legal traditions in a manner within each system is offered its own respect. But in a collaborative sense, they're working towards a similar goal. And that similar goal is, is you know, reducing the number of indigenous, indigenous children in care and providing that support for those families so that there is no intervention that has to be undertaken. Mm-hmm. So when you braid these three different legal orders together in collaboration, then that, that ultimate goal can be achieved. As nations across the country, First Nations start the process of, of creating their own child and family laws as you already have, as Pegwis already has, what is your advice to them? Get your laws drafted up and implemented as soon as possible. Um, you know, rely on your elders, rely on your knowledge keepers. And, uh, you know, it's it's really important that this work be done sooner rather than later. Should they give you a call if they if they need advice? 
You know what? Our lines are open in terms of helping our brother and sister First Nations across Canada. So we're certainly open to that. And we've been doing that over the past two years in terms of uh, outreach with our fellow uh, brothers and sisters across Canada. Earl, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. You too. Thank you so much. Earl Stevenson is the in-house counsel for Peguis Nation's Child and Family Services. Sounds from Kumasi, Ghana yesterday at a ceremony marking the return of seven items looted by British forces from the Ashanti Kingdom 150 years ago. The items include gold jewelry, and they've been part of the collection at the Fowler Museum of UCLA since 1965. Their repatriation follows a recent announcement by two British museums that plan to return parts of their Ashanti collections on a temporary loan basis. Sylvia Forney is the director of the Fowler Museum. We reached her in Accra. As you get set to leave Ghana, Sylvia, I'm wondering how you will remember those moments of officially returning these items. Well, it was indescribable. It was really an incredible moment. Just the conversations and seeing these pieces come back to Kumasi in front of thousands of people was a really indescribable moment that will stay with me and my colleagues for the rest of our lives. What were the reactions of people there, all of those who were gathered? Well, they were incredibly moved, especially when they understood that the objects were there to stay. You know, there was a bit of confusion for many because some of the artworks that are held at the British Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, will come back on a loan for now. And so people were quite incensed by the idea that these artworks that were taken from the palace after the end of the Segrenti War and were looted from the palace or extorted as part of the indemnity that the British demanded from the Ashanti would be loaned back to the palace. And so it took a little bit of time to explain to people that the pieces were there to stay. But once they understood that we were just leaving everything there, never to come back to claim them, everybody was really moved. I'm looking at some of the photographs of these seven items. Describe them for our listeners. Okay, so there is a small royal chair, which is a royal stool. There are two bracelets, a sort of gorget. These are gold items, as well as two anklets or bracelets, and an incredible fly whisk made of an elephant tail with finely woven gold threads and ornaments reserved to the king. The decision-making process for this, this was not a fight? This was not your museum being approached or any demands being made? Just tell me about that that decision. So uh, a couple of years ago, we received a Mellon grant to do provenance research on one of the foundational collections of the Fowler Museum, which we received in 1965 from Sir Henry Welcome, a British collector that collected almost a million objects in his lifetime at the turn of the 20th century. And we uh, at UCLA were the recipient of 30,000 objects. And at the time, the Fowler was a museum in a basement with probably two people on staff. So a lot of the information that was attached to this collection was never properly scrutinized. And this Mellon Grant allowed us to hire staff and do the research. And in doing this, we identify a number of pieces that we thought were red flags. We also engaged a professor at Tufts, uh, Kwasi Ampene, who is Ashanta himself. He's incredibly knowledgeable, very connected to the palace. And he was really our guide 
throughout this process in, in trying to understand the provenance of the pieces, but also how to give them back to the palace. Mm -hmm. So we did this for two years and the king said, February 5th, 150th anniversary from the looting of Kumasi would be great if this would come back at that point. And so we did whatever we could to make that happen. And it was worth it. You mentioned Kwasi Ampena. The Associated Press quotes him as describing this return, uh, you know, as signifying the return of our souls. So uh, it, it sounds like we, we really can't underestimate the the depth of the the emotion and the meaning yes, of this transfer. You know, it's really powerful for you know a palace where art is continuously made. You know, the artistry, the skill, the aesthetics. The culture is still very much thriving, but the historical objects are not there. So to see come back objects that were held by the defeated Ashanti in a moment that is very, very meaningful and powerful for Ashanti history, to see these stolen objects come back was incredibly emotional for all the people that we talked to and that we spent time with in Kumasi. You have said we are globally shifting away from the idea of museums as unquestionable repositories of art, as collecting institutions entitled to own and interpret art. And you you go on from there. But what do you want others in your position to consider? You know, it's hard because each museum is regulated in a different way. So at the Fowler Within UCLA, we were very, very fortunate to have an incredibly supportive leadership that made this possible. And not every museum is in that position. You know, sometimes there are very difficult bureaucratic obstacles that even people who completely understand why things should go back are having a hard time overcoming. And you know, it's the French did an exception to their patrimonial law, but didn't change the patrimonial law. And so until certain governments really take this issue to heart, then it's going to be really hard for certain institutions to do what we did. But I think this is the path today. It's really, really hard. And it's also from a public perspective's point of view, I don't think <laughs> it's a really good image to hold and display things that are so clearly linked to a history of violence. Sylvia, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Sylvia Forney is the director of the Fowler Museum at UCLA. We reached her in Accra. It might seem cool to have your high school art teacher consider your work worthy of sale. And, you know, the ultimate compliment, perhaps, for them to feature it prominently on their own website. And it is cool, you know, if they mention that the work is yours. But one Montreal-area art teacher appears to be marketing students' work as his own. Joel de Bellefeuille is the parent of a grade 8 student at Westwood Junior High School in Saint-Lazare, Quebec. We reached him in Montreal. Joel, how did your son find out what was happening, that his art teacher, Mario Perron, appeared to be selling students' work and passing it off as his own? Yeah, so it was on Wednesday uh, during his art class uh, where a bunch of uh, his friends and, and students uh, in the art class uh, decided to uh, you know, try and uh, check out what their uh, teacher's uh, uh, claim to fame with regards to his artwork was. So they turned around and uh, did a quick Google search and noticed that uh, several of the students' drawings uh, were up for sale on multiple websites. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, print photos. Uh, it was coffee cups, uh, towels, T-shirts, sweaters, uh, shower curtains, just a full uh, array of merchandise um, with the drawings of 96 uh, students uh, inside uh, the, the class. It's... It's staggering to hear you tell it. How did he tell you? What did he say? So he normally, you know, arrives home around 10 to 3 every day. My wife picks him up and 
I, I work uh, I work out of the uh, out of the basement downstairs. And when they arrived, I had heard them, uh, you know, kind of talking amongst themselves. Hey, uh, you should go downstairs and tell Daddy about what happened at school today. So of course, uh, my ears pricked up. I was curious, <laughs> and so I was waiting for him to come around the corner. And sure enough, he just said, you know, Daddy, you're not going to believe what had happened. Um, and then he started to tell me what did happen. And I, you know, I, I freaked out and I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, he started showing me on his phone the, you know, screenshots that he had taken and the links. And so I went on my computer and found the exact same links and I couldn't believe it. And I said, look, leave it with Daddy. I'll handle it. <laughs> I think... Uh, I've done quite a good job. Of You've been busy. It. You got the word out. That's uh, yeah, for sure. Busy. Yeah. And to be clear, this isn't a fundraising site where he's giving credit to the students for their artwork. Is there any way to misread what's happening here? Yeah, I've tried to slice it, you know, so many ways. And no, uh, unfortunately, it's not. Um, he specifically, methodically went and one by one posted uh, 96 drawings and then, you know, broke them down on, uh, you know, into different types of merchandise yeah. uh, to uh, resell uh, this particular, these these items. So it was very clear intent that he knew what he was doing and he had no qualms without uh, having told the children. And, and what are these drawings like? Describe them for us. Well, the project was draw a creepy sort of scary photo of a likeness of somebody and i mean some of them are quite good actually and it's just it's shameful that it has come to this where he chose that he can you know profit on off the backs of uh, of kids and and that that's what's concerning you know to myself and i'm i'm sure quite of quite a bunch of other parents that it's you know these these children are being exploited let's let's call it what it is they're being their their artwork is being exploited by somebody that parents are, are, are trusting and a portrait uh, of your son is is one of the the images uh, they are Correct. described there are titles underneath them i was looking at them earlier uh, logan's yeah. creepy portrait olivia's creepy portrait but his name yes. mario peron yeah. is uh, is underneath do you think that this is in it, some way an attempt to, to credit the students here um no i i believe it's just a title and this is my opinion. I believe it's just a title that he's given to the work, to the artwork, because if you highlight your mouse over the screen, it, it says, you know, Logan's uh, creepy uh, whatever photo mm. by Mario mm. M.J. Perron. Mr. Perron has not responded to CBC News requests for an interview. He's been absent from class since these yes. allegations surfaced. Uh, is there mm -hmm. any scenario in which you can imagine him returning? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty adamant about the fact that I, I would like to see, you know, him relieved of his of his duties. Um, he's, he's, you know, you only get uh, so many so many strikes, and um, he used all three in, in in one shot. He lost trust. So, um, you know, from my my son's standpoint or viewpoint, he would not be able to trust him. And of course, for for Mr. Perron himself, I mean, he's, you know, he was caught red-handed with his hand in the cookie jar, and um, this would be really hard for him to 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 come back from and to be trusted by any school board that um, would choose to take him on again. A spokesperson for the Lester B. Pearson School Board, uh, Darren Becker, told our CBC News colleagues the board is investigating and quote taking these allegations very seriously. Unquote. Uh, are you confident? in how they are approaching this? Well, I mean, I think uh, questions uh, should be answered by the school board to not only to the media, but to parents, because this is crossed the lines even of criminal, um, not just, you know, civil. And, and I, I'm not, you know, content with just, a, oh, well, it's, it's confidential and we're investigating it. To, to me, you know, there's not much to investigate. Besides, I'm uh, trying to figure out how to take down all these you know, multiple sites and images and, of course, coming to, to terms with what uh, ultimately should be done, which is to terminate his employment with the uh, Lester P. Pearson School Board. Joel, thank you for your time. Not a problem. Thank you so much. Joel de Belfoy is the parent of a grade 8 student at Westwood Junior High School in Saint-Lazare. We reached him in Montreal.
well, well. Looks like we've got ourselves an old-fashioned clam fight. You may be asking what a clam fight is. You may also be asking how long did it take you to make that theme where you chanted the words clam fight over and over and does that feel like the kind of thing a grown-up should do for a job? Sorry, I didn't quite catch that second question. But in answer to the first question, some clam fights are fights between clams, mostly involving the silent treatment. But this one is a fight between humans over clams. This week, Washington State Representative Mike Chapman's bill designating the Pacific razor clam as the state clam had its first reading. And certainly razor clams are much loved in Washington. David Berger, author of Razor Clams, Buried Treasure of the Pacific Northwest, told the Seattle Times every year tens of thousands of people go razor clamming. It's sort of Christmas and New Year's Day and the 4th of July all rolled into one, which sounds like fun. Or like Mr. Berger had some really weird holidays growing up. But who's this charging up from behind? Figuratively, since it's a clam and it can't actually move, why, it's the gooey duck, the huge, delicious, undeniably phallic clams that are also much loved in Washington state, so much so that the razor clam bill has been temporarily put aside so lawmakers can hear gooey duck lovers stake their claim to the importance of their clam. Like I said, clam fight. And given that each clam has stubborn fans in its corner, it seems neither will win by a clamation. I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. If it's a Band-Aid solution, it's a pretty big Band-Aid. Today, Ottawa and Ontario announced a new deal outlining how $3.1 billion in federal health care funding will be spent in the province. As part of the agreement, the provincial government will create new primary health care teams, open another 700 spots in medical education programs, and upgrade digital infrastructure in hospitals, all of which government officials say will help increase access to family doctors and reduce wait times. Here's Ontario Premier Doug Ford speaking today. I'm going to be zoned in on these uh, emergency departments. I'll put the money in that is needed, but we need the cooperation from everyone to make sure that that you go in there uh, rather than this four hours or six hours or eight hours waiting because I, I'm getting calls every day. Uh, let's knock it down to an hour. What do you need? Do you need more doctors? Do you need more money? What is it that you need? And we'll step up to the plate. Lisa Solomon is an emergency physician in Toronto. That's where we reached her. Dr. Solomon, will this funding help you do what Premier Ford is saying there, that this will cut down ER wait times? Wow. Well, I mean, that's an interesting clip, given I know what's coming down the pipeline. So currently, we had uh, some surge funding for physician hours that had been implemented during the pandemic, and it's ending March 31st. Mm -hmm. And no one has received any indication. In fact, most have received indication that it is supposed to end March 31st. And by ending, that means that uh, many hospitals that have been having extra physician coverage, extra physician hours and shifts, will have to decrease those physician hours and shifts because the funding will be gone. So if he really means that he wants to cut down wait times, then I really do think the government needs to relook at those decisions. So the surge funding you mentioned should stay in place. But beyond that, how much money would it take to make sure an ER experience is not what it is for people today? 
I mean, I don't know what it is in terms of dollars and cents, but I could tell you what some solutions are to improve what the ER weights are. So they didn't say anything about improving uh, emergency department overcrowding. And we know that the issues causing um, ED overcrowding are lack of uh, hospital beds, Mm -hmm. lack of long-term care beds, lack of home care. So, for example, our big issues are what we call boarding of inpatients within the emergency department. So those are patients who are admitted but are being taken care of in the emergency department. And that's often because the um, patients who are admitted in hospital, many of them are waiting for alternate levels of care, such as long-term care, rehab, or to be able to go back There's no beds for them in those other places. Right, there's no beds for them. And so I didn't hear, like, anything in this announcement to address that. And Mm -hmm. so while I think there's other good things that he addressed, Mm -hmm. when I'm hearing this clip of him talking specifically about emergency department wait times, I didn't hear anything in this announcement mm-hmm. that actually is going to help with that issue. Let's let's look at the, the rest of the announcement by the numbers as well. So more than $3 billion over three years. Federal officials say this money will mean 600 family doctors, 600 nurse practitioners, and 3,000 nurses. So when you hear those numbers, what do you hear? So it, it's just people. It doesn't say where those people are going to be. So when they're saying we're going to increase the number of family doctors that we have in Ontario, my question is, well, how are you going to do that? Because right now, a big part of our crisis is that a lot of mid-career family physicians are leaving comprehensive family practice. And I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. And many of my classmates and my cohort are leaving comprehensive family medicine And many people are retiring. So we already have 2.2 million Ontarians without a family doctor, and that number is just going to skyrocket. So the question is, why are family doctors leaving? And what is the government going to do to, one, ensure that we can retain who we have and make it attractive for people wanting to set up family practices and do comprehensive family medicine? Why did you leave? You know, it really was about the administrative burden. It became, you know, I loved my patients and I really enjoyed what I was doing, but I was spending way too much time um, doing non-clinical work. So every night and on weekends and even on vacation, having to take my computer with me uh, and it was just hours and hours Mm -hmm. of paperwork. So eventually it just, I mean, the pandemic happened, things worked out in sort of various ways and I just went to full-time emergency medicine. But Mm -hmm. that just shows sort of the burden that family doctors are having and the burnout. I, you know, I think I left in the nick of time because now so many of my friends and colleagues are burnt out and we're seeing a lot of that in the news about the burnout that family physicians are having. And, and you know, I have some ideas where some of this money should go in terms of making well, how, it more yeah. attractive for how, people. How would you spend the money if it was in your hands? Yeah, so, I mean, look, I'm happy with the funding towards mental health and for youth mental health and addictions. I think that's really important. I've talked about sort of some of the solutions for our wait times and emergency. I think that's important. But if we're going to talk about specifically the family physician challenge, I really do think that this uh, some of this money needs to go to um, the infrastructure and the administrative burden. And right now, as we all know, inflation has shot up over the last few years. And it's becoming untenable for family doctors to run a business. And I really do think that the government needs to take on the the cost of running the business, as well as paying for more administrative support for family doctors, including offering physician assistants who can do perhaps a lot of the paperwork and the reviewing of labs and charts and, and phone calls that are really consuming a lot of the time and also helping fund the infrastructure of the electronic medical record, which really is um, on the backs of family doctors. And they're, they're paying for all of this out of a very small amount of money that they get per patient. And so I think those things, plus ensuring that every family doctor and every patient is part of a team of um, interdisciplinary healthcare professionals, including dietitians, social work, pharmacists, psychologists, physiotherapists, nurse practitioners and nurses, I think really would make a huge difference. You said there was some some good in, in this announcement as well. We know there's a training piece, 700 spots in training programs for healthcare professionals. So is that something that gives you absolutely. comfort? That's absolutely a step in the right direction. I think funding towards mental health and addictions. I mean, we don't know the details yet, so the details will come. But that I see this all the time in emergency, and it's been getting worse over the last few years, is the lack of support that people have 
um, regarding mental health and addiction. So I think that's really important. And they also announced increased, you know, family medicine teams, family health teams, whatever that may mean. Again, the devil's in the details. So uh, hopefully this is a step forward. But I think that there's a lot more that needs to be done to help improve the wait times that we're exper- that our patients are experiencing. Doctor, thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Lisa Solomon is an ER doctor. We reached her in Toronto. Israel has begun to intensify its airstrikes in the densely packed city of Rafah, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he has ordered the military to prepare a plan for the evacuation of that city. But as humanitarian officials around the world are pointing out, there is nowhere else in Gaza for civilians to go. Rafah sits on Gaza's southernmost border with Egypt. It is the place where some 1.7 million people already displaced by Israel's assault on the territory have congregated. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas has called a potential ground invasion of Rafah a move that, quote, crosses all red lines, unquote. Egypt has reportedly begun bolstering its security presence at the border, and even U.S. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby says a major military operation there would be, quote, a disaster. As far as Norwegian Refugee Council Secretary General Jan Egeland is concerned, that is putting it mildly. I have uh, 58 colleagues inside Rafa. They are there in the midst of a population of 1.4, 1.5 million in a tiny, tiny place. I think it's 63 square kilometers. 1.5 million civilians filled to the brim with children and women. And then they are still thinking of a ground offensive, which would be a bloodbath. It must be prevented. We're looking at the allies of Israel to prevent it and some sanity to sink in here so that there can be negotiations on the root causes of all of this violence. For those that do not understand Gaza and Rafah in particular, can you just lay out what it would mean for Israel to go in with its infantry into what is effectively a a small town, though now with a population of a medium-sized city? Well, it would be a war in a refugee camp. There is no other way to describe Rafa than the world's biggest displacement camps. There are people under flimsy plastic sheeting. They are fighting for, for food. There is no drinking water. There is epidemic disease. And then they want to have bring a war to this place. You, you can't make it up, really. It's a, we're in 2024, not, not 1824. I mean, even in, at that time, this would have been, uh, been prohibited. You mentioned specifically three countries, the US, the UK, Germany, that are simultaneously calling for Israeli restraint, but also arming Israel, your words. You would like them, presumably, to say, if you do not follow our strictures, our demands on the treatment of civilian population, we will not supply you with arms. Absolutely. I mean, how, how, how can they not have accountability for how their arms is being used? This was disproportionate from week one. And if it's wrong with occupation in, in Ukraine, uh, collective punishment uh, by cutting electricity, food, warmth to the Ukrainians, how can it not be wrong in Gaza or for that matter, uh, the West Bank? The hypocrisy is astounding. Jan Egeland is the head of the Norwegian Refugee Council and helped broker the Oslo Accords of the 1990s. He spoke with the BBC's Johnny Diamond this morning.
Only about 2% of people who live in Japan were born somewhere else. But according to a new lawsuit, they get a distressingly high percentage of attention from the police. Three men, all of them visible minorities, claim they've been singled out for questioning over and over again. They're suing for damages of about 3 million yen, or $27,000 Canadian each, arguing that racial profiling violates Japan's constitution and international treaties. Maurice Shelton is one of the litigants. He's black and has permanent resident status in Japan where he's lived for 10 years. We reached him in Kawasaki. Maurice, what is a typical interaction with police in Japan for you? What kinds of things do they ask you? Uh, They ask me for identification. They ask, where am I going? What is my purpose? And that's kind of a leading question so they can try to see if... uh, I'm committing a crime, but usually I'm just standing around minding my own business. And and sometimes it's it's traffic related, but you haven't actually yeah. committed any traffic offenses. Yeah. So there's been a few times I've been let go several times while driving. And it's just uh, one of those things where, well, what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. But they checked my, my foreign residency card. So it's OK. They they did a routine check of the foreigner. Just to underline for our listeners, what is signaling to you based on these frequent interactions that this is not about traffic and it's really about who you are? Well, it's the mundane things. If you're just standing around in a crowd of people and then you just happen to be chosen out of thousands and thousands of people in the most, uh, the biggest metropolitan area in the world, it has to cross your mind. Why me? You know, if I hadn't done anything wrong, then why me? Um, and it's not to say that I'm a victim or I'm mm-hmm. someone that's being unfairly um, targeted, but um, in the in the occasions where I have committed a, uh, a traffic infraction, I say, well, okay, I'll take my loss and keep it moving. But in this situation, why did it happen? Why do you think it's happening? Well, I think that uh, this is red meat for people that believe that, un- in and I think untruly or inaccurately that Japan is a a very non-diverse place. There are many different types of people uh, with different backgrounds, myself included, um, that make up uh, the guts of this country. So many people, when you you close your eyes right now, I want the listeners to close their eyes and you think, what does a Japanese person look like? Um, It doesn't look like me. And I understand that. That's fine. I just want to have the ability to be an upstanding contributor to society. The other plaintiffs that you're with, you're all from different backgrounds. Uh, yes. And, and why do you think people from those backgrounds are being uh, targeted in particular? Well, all of the plaintiffs are darker skinned people. So um, the attacks that I've gotten, people say, well, you're trying to change this country into something that's not. So all of these people, uh, one person has background uh, from uh, Pakistan, another one um, from India and Fiji. So these people don't represent, in, in other people's eyes, uh, the face of Japan or what Japan is supposed to represent. Not that it matters, but uh, people have lived there a long time, have citizenship in in one of the cases. But again, it's yes. not based on it's not based on the paperwork, is what your argument is. And one of your fellow litigants declined to give his full name when speaking to mm-hmm. reporters. He says. You know, he was quoted as saying he's afraid of harassment. Did you have any concerns coming forward and being part of this lawsuit? Yes, indirectly. I had only a, a couple of concerns. Um, I initially hid my last name and I won't hide it now, but uh, my partner expressed concern of backlash because of the fact that I am standing up. And usually, if you know your history, those who stand up, um, usually they come up against a lot of resistance. So, I'm not afraid. I want that to be very clear to all the listeners. I'm not afraid of of what might happen. I'm I'm only my fear would be is that I could not make space or uh, not be seen as someone in good faith trying to make space for mm-hmm. those who come behind me. It's 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 not a huge sum that this case is is asking for and you you're hinting at this there the broader implication mm-hmm. but what do you hope ultimately this case does? It's not about the money. So the money is nominal. We want fair treatment. If we say that we're a rules-based society and we, we adhere to the, uh, to, to the law, what the police have done is illegal. So we just want 
fair and equal treatment under the law. Even if I'm not a citizen, I'm, I'm still a resident here. I'm still, I still should be afforded the protections of the law. So if we're going to go that way, then let's just do it fair across the board. Do you get the sense that they're ready for a shift, that, that officials, in any case, I can't speak for Japanese people, but the police you're dealing with, do you sense that a shift could come because of this case? I think with any reactionary outlet or, or structure, they have to be brought to heel. So it's not about if they're ready. They have to be made to be ready. So this is just the first step. I know that there will be it will be a long and protracted battle. So there could be a shift because uh, the economy, the economic situation now, it's uh, and the the changing demographics of the country. The foreigners are here. They're coming and they're going to be here to stay. So we have to adjust. You either adjust or you get left in a dustbin of history. So I think um, it's not about them wanting to be ready. They have to be ready. They're going to have to be made to be ready. So this is part of the preparation for a changing future. One of my favorite groups is Outcast. I'm I have no problem being. Uh, I'm from Atlanta, so I, I have no problem being the black sheep. So if I'm a foreigner, that's fine. Just treat me fairly. Just give me just give me the fair one. That's all. I don't want bullies. I don't want people to think that they can inflict fear on people that can't necessarily defend themselves. So I'm I'm taking that burden on my shoulders to fight back. Good to speak with you, Maurice. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Thanks. Maurice Shelton is one of three people living in Japan who have filed a lawsuit over alleged racial profiling by the police. We reached out to Japan's National Police Service for comment, but we did not receive a reply by the time we went to air. It's the end of an awful week for newsrooms across Canada. Yesterday, Bell Media announced that it would be cutting programming at CTV and BNN Bloomberg after parent company BCE announced it was cutting about 4,800 jobs across the company. It's selling off dozens of radio stations as well. Bell's president said, quote, We continue to face a difficult economy and government and regulatory decisions that undermine investment in our networks, fail to support our media business in a time of crisis, and fail to level the playing field with global tech giants, unquote. Justin Trudeau is not buying that criticism. Here's what Global News' Colin DeMello asked the Prime Minister about the cuts today. Your heritage minister accused Bell Canada of breaking its promise to invest in local news after receiving $40 million in regulatory relief funding. What is your view of that company's layoffs and what is your commitment to future government support with that company? I'm furious. This is a garbage decision by a corporation that should know better. We've seen over the past years journalistic outlets radio stations, small community newspapers, bought up by corporate entities who then lay off journalists, you know, change the offering, the quality of offering to people. And then when people don't watch as much or engage as much, the corporate entity says, oh, see, they're not profitable anymore. We're going to sell them off. This is the erosion, not just of journalism, of quality local journalism, at a time where people need it more than ever, given misinformation and disinformation. But it's eroding our very democracy. Our abilities to tell stories to each other of how people's lives are, stories that reflect our own communities and not you know, central offices in our biggest cities, is part of what binds this country together from coast to coast to coast with with incredible diversity of experiences, of geographies, we need those local voices. And over the past years, corporate Canada, and there are many culprits on this, have abdicated their responsibility towards the communities that they have always made very good profits off of in various ways. And 
they need like as a government we have been stepping up over the past years fighting for local journalism fighting for investments that we can have while all the while fending off attacks from conservatives and others who say no 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 you're trying to buy off journalists we're trying to support journalism in this country and across this country but no government can do it alone canadians need to demand better as we will be demanding better from corporate leaders like in this case bell that are eroding Canadians' ability to know each other, to trust each other, and to trust in the country and the future we are building together. So yeah, I'm pretty pissed off about what's just happened. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking in Toronto this morning about the cuts at Bell. If you're selling kale at a farmer's market, it might be a good idea to put out some free samples. I mean, everyone loves stuff they don't have to pay for. And it's a great way for potential customers to get a sense of your product, your kale, how uh, bitter and tough it is and how hard it is to chew or enjoy. Uh, Maybe kale is not a great example of the value of a free sample. But I should point out, in case you're wondering, neither is cocaine. You do have to admire the entrepreneurial spirit of the man in Calgary who called himself Alex Lee. He didn't just lazily wait around for people to knock on his door asking to buy his cocaine. He showed some moxie. He innovated. He went out to a local casino and handed out business cards with free samples of cocaine stapled to them. I I know what you're thinking. You greatly admire his initiative, but that seems risky. Well, you should know he took brilliant precautions so the police would never see the cocaine. He stapled the samples to the backs of his business cards. And yet, somehow, they uncovered the drugs anyway. And they were able to uncover him through some breathtaking investigative work that involved using the contact information on the front of the business cards. Now he's been charged and he won't get any credit for his ingenuity as a disruptor. But despite his innovation, he really should have been more laid back about the free samples. Some professional victories, you really don't want to rub people's noses in. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.